So this week we're going to launch our series into the book of Hebrews, and really the purpose of sort of studying this book um, has, it's, it's multifaceted, if you will. And one of those reasons is because there is seemingly this, this drift from what would be traditional Christianity. And we can complain about it and we can bark about it, or we can just go back to the gospel and see what was the pattern and then be able to understand how far we've gotten away or how close we are and then just make sure our lives are set upon the gospel. Because it is necessary for our life to be lived not by the popularity of a new message or not by a new concept or idea, but rather we live our life by the gospel. Our life is founded, it's principled on the gospel. And so how I think this will be helpful is we'll just cover the first 10 chapters today. I'm going to read from chapter 9, and then we'll just go back and reference the earlier chapters. And then next week, we're going to start talking about these individuals who walked by faith and lived by faith, who would be the heroes, if you will. But I I think we need to set the foundation, because sometimes we can find ourselves trying to live the life of a hero, but we miss the most foundational aspects of the life that they lived. We want the victories but we don't always want the fundamentals. So why don't we jump into this and see where it goes and let's try and have a little bit of fun in what is probably a little bit of a disorienting text. Um, It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant on all sides covered with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. Okay, there's a whole lot in there. And if I could just summarize it, it would just be this. Jesus is better. Whatever was, Jesus is better. But it's important to understand that when Jesus redeemed us, he redeemed us from what was good but not better, and he reformed what was good, and he therefore made it better. And I find that important to say because Jesus did not redeem us from worship. He did not redeem us from sacrifice. He did not redeem us from prayer. He did not redeem us from gathering in the presence of God. He reformed it and made it all better. Now that's a big deal. And when we start talking about this concept of it being better, it's important that we're able to look at what it was so that we understand how it's better. I don't know how you learn, but sometimes if I get into something that's just really confusing, I sort of drop back and have to figure out, okay, what do I understand that might give me some handles to understand what I don't understand? And so he's talking to a group of people who followed the old covenant, but they were having trouble understanding the new covenant. And so he spoke to them about the new covenant, but he used old covenant language. And when he used the old covenant language, they understood how this was better. But in understanding how it's better using old covenant language for us who never lived under the old covenant, it's actually important because it allows us to not take what is new or what is better and turn it into something that it's not. So there is this sort of foundation or grounding that we're able to understand what is better by understanding what was. Now, sometimes when we have these conversations, it can sound a little bit transactional. Um, We certainly live in a generation where we appreciate relationships. We put a lot of emphasis on relational ministry or relational work. But I, I do think it's important that we understand in every relationship, there are transactions. One of the worst employees on the planet is somebody who you absolutely love. They're awesome. They're fun. They're relational. They don't do anything. (laughs) Why? They don't don't understand the transactions. Let let me explain it this way, because work sometimes is offensive. Um, Those of you who are married, that's a relationship. There are also transactions in the relationship. We just had Valentine's Day. I'm assuming that each partner had an expectation of some form of transaction. If you showed up on Valentine's Day, you're in relationship. You love them, they love you. Like, I get it. But you better have a card. You you better have something to exchange Why? Because there are transactional elements. We see that in the Bible. They're called if-then propositions, where God will say, if you do this, then I will do that. What is it? It's a transaction, but it's within a relationship. Now, because there are transactions that aren't within relationships, we just kind of get frustrated by this. Um, I'll give you one. Uh, Last year, remember the hurricane we had? 
Right, power went out for like ever. I, in my family, I'm not one of these that's real good at preparing for like the worst. Um, I can be very cynical, but I, I actually expect the best. I'm very hopeful. So as a result, I'm kind of naive sometimes to preparation. So I don't have any MREs in the house like that you can make with no power. We don't fill the bathtubs with water. We don't like have a bunch of ice and coolers. Like when the power goes out within hours, like we're worthless. <laughs> Absolutely worthless. Don't come to my house expecting to get anything. There's nothing. We'll just sit and starve together in the family room. That's what's gonna happen. Once the granola bars are gone, we're, we're gonna die. So after, you know, a little bit of this, I decided to venture out and forage for food. So I took the family with me, and we go, and my regular spots are closed. McDonald's is closed. Wendy's is closed. Jimmy John's closed. Everybody's closed. Like, what is it? think there's a hurricane. Why can't people come to work? I'm hungry. <laughs> and, you know, I get around, and I find a racetrack that's open on 98. I go in. I don't know how you feel about those, um, the, the roller grills. You know those little boxes with all the spinning? They look like conveyor belts of some kind without the belt. But there's hot dogs on them, and they just, they spin indefinitely. They're just, they're, they're, they're very pretty, though. Like, they're shiny. They look good. So I'm looking at this, you know, and it's open, and just the air's been going all day. People sneeze and hack, and it doesn't matter. The rollers, I'm sure, they cleanse, they sanitize, I have no doubt. The rollers <laughs> cleanse the hot dogs. So I grab like a few, a corn dog, a hot dog. Like I'll eat anything at this point. I'm starving. None of my family would eat it, but I, I ate it. And I'm going to be honest, it didn't feel great. It didn't, it didn't feel great. Um, now, that was a transaction that I have no desire to have a relationship with ever again. Ever. But there are transactions that are positive, that are within positive relationships. And so I think when we see how worship was established in the Old Covenant, it gives us some handles to understand the transactions that are necessary within the relationship of the New Covenant. And so let's just talk a little bit about that. And then we will see if we can't uh, see what this scripture might be showing us. A little further back in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, we see this statement. It says that the holy places on the earth serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, God spoke to him saying... See that you make everything according to the pattern that you were shown on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant that he obtained is better because it's based on better promises. So Jesus obtained a better covenant because it's based on, enacted on better promises. Everything about the new covenant is better than the old covenant. But I want you to see what we have in this old covenant. We had this tent. 
That God said, look, I want you to build it, but I want you to build it according to what you see in the heavens. So what we have to embrace is the tent that we're talking about here in Hebrews was a reflection of the heavens that Moses saw when he was on the mountain. So what we see in the tent was based on the pattern of heaven that is eternal, even though the tent on the earth is temporary. But it's based on the heavens that are eternal. So if the tent is no more and there's something better, what is better is just a better reflection of what is in the heaven, heavens because that's what the tent originally was. So what on the earth today is better that is supposed to be a reflection of the heavens? The church. It's, it's us. So in the old covenant, they had the law and they had the tent. And in the new covenant, we have the gospel and we have the church. And it's better because it's based on better promises. Jesus did not redeem us from gathering. He made gathering better. He reformed gathering. Now let's walk through that a little bit. John chapter 4 and verse 21. Uh, Jesus said to her, um, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither here on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So the tent would have been erected on a mountain and Jesus is saying it's not about the mountain but rather it's about worshiping in spirit. So he's saying the location, you don't have to go somewhere where you are not in order to find yourself worshiping but you can worship in any town where you are. Now that's a big deal. And we can take that to mean, oh, that means that I don't ever have to gather, or we can take it to mean I can gather with the saints in any town where I am. Now let's see if we can bring clarity to this, because he says worship in spirit and worship in truth. So how do I do this? We see this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, when you come to Jesus, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up into a house of the Lord to be a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus. Now, what did they do at the previous tent? They offered sacrifices. What are we called to do? Offer sacrifices. They gathered at a tent. Where do we gather? with us. Whenever we gather, we, the gathering of us, are being built into a spiritual house. Now what is that spiritual house? First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul says to his student, he says, so you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, so that you may know how you ought to do this. You are in the church of the living God. He says, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So I worship in spirit, meaning that I can do this in any town where I find myself, but I also do it in truth. What is that pillar and buttress of the truth? The church. What is the church? 
the household of God. What is the household of God? That thing that Jesus puts together by a bunch of living stones. We see this further expressed in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. We're supposed to encourage one another when we come together, like that's one of the things that we do. And so much the more as you see the day drawing near. If the new covenant was to redeem us from gathering, why in every example in the new covenant are we told what the gathering is, that the gathering is given a name, and then we're told to gather all the more? Clearly, we have to embrace the truth of the new covenant, that the gathering we've not been redeemed from, but the gathering has been made better. This is better, and it will always be better. The gathering is better. And there are people who will say, I am the church. Do you realize how arrogant that is? I just want you to understand something. When you think about the gathering of the church, you think about every gift that is in this room. You think about the power that is in each one of us in this room. And to think that I am everything all by myself that you are gathered? Sometimes we just make statements that sound cute and sound like anti-religious and it makes us seem kind of, you know, whatever. Actually, we just sound stupid. Because here's the thing. You are a member of the church. You are a living stone in the church. You are stacked along other living stones, one upon the other, upon the other, upon the other. We see this beautiful moment when Jesus saw the temple. He said, hey, you tear that temple down and I'm gonna build it back up in three days. And they got really frustrated at him. And they're like, what do you, how do you think you're gonna build it back in three days? He said, yeah, oh, I'm not talking about that temple. I'm talking about this temple. Do you realize that you are the body of Christ? How are you the body of Christ and you're the temple? He just told us. He just showed us, he said, my body is gonna be the new tent. My body is gonna be a bunch of living stones all stacked together. And when you're in the body, you see me. When he looked at Philip, he said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is what it's like when we're in the gathering. When I see you, I should see Jesus. When you see me, you should see Jesus. This is the body, this is the tent, this is the gathering, this is the church, and it's better. We're not redeemed from gathering less. It's been reformed so that we can gather wherever. And wherever we gather, there he is in the midst of us. But when do we gather? And that's one that gets a little bit of pushback in 2023. We don't like institutions. We don't like transactions. We like everything to be ethereal and ish. We don't like absolutes. Well, let me just throw this out there. If there was just a random, hey, in three weeks, we're gonna gather. See y'all then. That's the only information you were given. How many of us would actually be able to gather? We have no idea where, we have no idea when. How 
can we gather? So some of the things that everybody likes to push back and be like, oh, so many rules. How, how else do you do this? We know we're commanded to gather, so now we need to know how and we need to know when. Like, where and when do we do this? Oh, that's interesting because he already told us. Under the old covenant, he actually told us when we are to gather. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 3. It says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of Solemn rest, a sacred assembly. So he told them on the seventh day, they would experience their Sabbath. Now, that went on for 1,500, 2,000 years. I mean, it went for a long time. They gathered at the tent. They gathered at that time. Then Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, not on the seventh day of the week, but he was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And then when the Spirit of God was poured out on the church, he was poured out on the church on the first day of the week, not on the seventh day of the week. And so you, begin, you began to have these new believers who lived under the old covenant and gathered on the seventh day, they were like a little bit confused because other people wanted to gather on the first day. And they're like, no, 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 it's the seventh day. And the other group is, no, no, it's the first day. And so then the Spirit of God spoke to this moment and he said it like this in Romans chapter 14 and verse five. To the one, he, see, he esteems one day as better than another, where another esteems all days alike. But let each one be convinced in his own mind. For the one who honors the day, who observes the day, honors the Lord. What does that mean? That means if you gather on the seventh day or you gather on the first day, what is most important is that you honor the Sabbath. And your Sabbath might be on day seven and your Sabbath might be on day one. We here, we choose to honor the Sabbath on the first day, what we call the Lord's Day. Why do we do that? Because we see this mentioned throughout the book of Acts. We even see it in the book of Revelation on the Lord's Day, on the Lord's Day, on the Lord's Day, on the Lord's Day. The Apostle John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and I saw. So it's just enough for us to look in the rearview mirror and see a pattern that has been established where God's people met on the first day of the week. So we do that. Now, can people meet on Saturday? Absolutely. It's just we meet on Sunday. There are other people, they worship Jesus on Saturday. They love Jesus just like you love Jesus. They've just chosen to observe their Sabbath on the seventh day. What's important is that you gather. When does your church gather and is that a Sabbath to you? That's what matters the most. And why does it matter that it's a Sabbath? I love what he says here. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest and sacred assembly. Both. It's not just a day of rest. There are some people like, oh, I need a day of rest, so I'm just not even going to show up to love Jesus on the Lord's Day. No, it's where is the rest? The rest is in the solemn assembly. Like we sleep at night to rest our bodies. But there's something about our heart receiving, our soul receiving rest. I don't know how you are, but sometimes I get a little stressed out. Like, uh... I'm not sure this is actually going to work, stressed out. 
where, you know, you might not sleep that well all the time during the days that you're supposed to sleep. And um, there's something about coming into the sacred assembly and my soul receiving rest. There is a solemn rest in the sacred assembly. We go to all sorts of other places to find rest for parts of us. The part of us that gets stressed out, the soul finds its rest in the, in the assembly. And there are a lot of people who are living with unnecessary stressors because they're not coming and casting their anxieties on him. They're just trying to do it by themselves on a Tuesday or on a Thursday. There's something about honoring his command to gather on the Sabbath. And in that gathering, you receive solemn rest in the sacred assembly. So we see this being made better. It's made better in the new covenant. I'm not redeemed from gathering. Gathering is just, it's just better. Um, Okay, so let's keep, let's keep pushing. What is it that we do? What do we do when we gather? Like, what did they do when they, when they gathered? They gathered for the purpose of worship. That's what they did. They worshiped when they came together. What is worship? There's a lot of different definitions. There's a lot of things that it is. It's not just one thing. But we see what they did. They gathered to worship. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5, it's the first time we see the word worship used. First time. So we'll go back to that. It's actually pre-law, so before there ever even was a tent. Before Jesus ever came and fulfilled the first law, we see this moment before all of that where the word worship is used and therefore established in the gospel. Genesis 22.5 says, Abraham said to his young men, you stay here with the donkey. I and the lad are going over there to worship. What were they going to do? They were going over there to sacrifice. Those of you that are new to church, it's just a whole new thing for you. Uh, there is a patriarch that we call Abraham. His name was Abram. God changed his name to Abraham. And there came a moment in his life where God promised him a son. God gave him that son. And then God tested him. And he tested him by seeing if he would obey him. And he asked for the sacrifice of that son. And it's a really long kind of theology to let you know that that was okay to happen in the moment because God was never actually going to ask him to do that. And he wasn't tempting him with evil. He was asking him to obey. And we could get there, but there's too much to do right now. Okay, so he goes over, though. And he, in the moment, was going to sacrifice his son because that's what worship was. And in that moment, God said, no, 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 now I know. And I provided a ram. In that place, he called Yahweh Yireh or Jehovah Jireh if you're a, new, a King James person. And so you might have heard the song, song Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And that, that's where that came from, that moment. Okay, so we get the idea of worship from that moment. And we see that, that idea carried out throughout the gospel, all the way even through the book of Revelation. And so we see this pattern of worship established in the old covenant that is reformed in the new covenant. And I think one of the best ways to understand it is to actually walk through the tent itself and see how they did it and then see what is the pattern today that was based on the pattern yesterday. Maybe that it helps me. Maybe it'll help you a little. Um, all right, so we have this tent that we see in our text today, and it talked about all these articles, this furniture, all this stuff that was in the tent. 
and there was a holy place and a most holy place and the Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place, but there were candlesticks and there was a table with bread on it in the holy place. But outside of that, there's a basin of water and then there's an altar and it's all surrounded by like a fence. And the fence only had one way to get in. You could only get in through the east side. It's fascinating when we look at the tent that was a reflection of heaven. The gate of heaven must be on the east side. And the gate in the Garden of Eden that God sealed off when we sinned and were banished, it only had an entrance to the east side. The cherubim with the flaming swords were put on the east side. Why? Because there was one way into the garden and there's one way into the tent. It was on the east side. And fascinatingly, there's just one way into the church. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So it seems like the reflection that was in the Garden of Eden that was on the east side and was in the tent on the east side and was reflected through Christ is that there's just one way that we have opportunity to get in, and that is through Jesus. And so I have to understand that I don't belong to the church just as I come and hang out and gather. Rather, it's just like Peter says, come through Jesus and you are being built up as living stones. So the one way in is that I come in through him. Him. But now that I come in through him, how do I come in? Okay, I've got it. I love Jesus. Now I'm coming in. But what is my posture coming in? What does worship look like if it's different, but I still have to worship? What is it? We'll go from Psalms and then we'll jump into Romans. Psalm chapter 100 and verse 1 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. What does our text say? To serve the living God. There's a better way to serve the living God. They entered his gates, and he said, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. So I enter in through Jesus now. I'm coming in, but what am I coming in saying? I'm giving thanks to his name. What is that thanksgiving that I'm giving to his name? Oh, that's the sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1 says, Let us continually then offer up the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that gives thanks to his name. So I don't not sacrifice anymore. It's just sacrifice is different. Rather than sacrifice being and goats. Now sacrifice is my praise, my worship, my thanksgiving to him. That's what my sacrifice is. And I haven't been redeemed from sacrifice. Sacrifice has just been made better. It's been made better. And why don't I, so I'm, I'm walking past this, this altar. Why don't I put something on it? Oh, because it's a reflection of the heavens. And when we see through the eyes of Stephen, when the heaven was rolled, heavens were rolled back, what did he see? He said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And it was the same Jesus that Paul, that John, the best friend of Jesus that he saw. He said, I, I heard the lion of the tribe of Judah, but I looked and I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. There is no reason for the blood of bulls and goats 
because the lamb has already been slain. The better sacrifice has already been made. You don't have a sacrifice that equals his sacrifice. His sacrifice has already been made, which is why I can walk into his house with a clear conscience, not because of what I did, but because of what he did. But now that I've walked into his house with a clear conscience because of what he did, now if something asked of me to do, what am I supposed to do? Continually offer up the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of my lips that gives him thanks. It's the same thing that Psalm 100 told me to do by entering into his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. And then we see this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. He said, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. So hear me, present your body. How do I present my body? I don't present my body by rolling out of bed and turning the computer on. I present my body by getting ready and coming in that east gate through Jesus and offering up a sacrifice of praise. That's how I do it. And I do it with reverence and I do it with awe. I don't do it in my goodness or in my awesomeness because I see the reflection. Oh, the lamb, the lamb that was slain for me. So I can't stand in the presence of God with my hands in my pockets. I cannot stand in the presence of God without opening my mouth because there's an altar that reminds me to look up and I see a lamb as though he was slain. He's standing at the right hand of God and there's nothing left but for me to give him worship and glory and honor and praise. And I'm just telling you, I haven't been redeemed from worship. I've been redeemed to worship, to offer a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And so he just keeps on going. He said, there's a basin and the basin is full of water. When they would finish the sacrifice, then it was time for a refreshing. It was time for a baptism. It was water to clean up. And in the book of Acts, chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I need to make sure I clarify that because this is a spirit-filled church. And that means we speak in tongues. We pray for you to speak in tongues. We believe everybody can, and therefore we hope everybody wants to speak in tongues. Why? So that you can pray with your spirit and you can pray with your understanding also. So that you can sing with your spirit, so that you can sing with your understanding also, according to 1 Corinthians 14, so that you also can pray mysteries when you don't know how to pray, but the Spirit of God will pray through you. Or when there are moments with groanings, and Romans says, that will come upon you because the Spirit himself is making intercession for you. So we, we believe all that. That has nothing to do with my message right now. I just wanted to make sure you know we believe all that. But we're talking here about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is every single person who has named the name of Jesus 
They are filled with the Spirit of God inside of them because their sins have been forgiven. So there is a soul refreshing that they get to experience because they are one with Him. They are forgiven. There is no shame. There is no regret. There is just you in the presence of Jesus and you have been made whole. And that is represented by this basin full of water but there's also a promise that is a daily promise and it begins in the community or in the gathering of God. Jesus said it like this in John chapter seven and verse 38. He said, as the scripture has said, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him had not yet received because he had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So now that Jesus has been sacrificed for your sins and he was glorified through the resurrection, now we receive the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that we receive is that refreshing that Peter promised in chapter three if we kept going in the book of Acts when he said repent and turn away so that times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. So there is this promise of a refreshing in that solemn rest from the presence of the Lord. How does it come? Like, how do we get it? Does it just happen? Yeah, because the sacrifice of praise is connected to the refreshing of the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, it says very clearly, be filled with the Spirit. How? Addressing one another, that means I have to do it in community, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So when I'm offering the sacrifice of praise, there is also a refreshing because of the Spirit of God who is within me. So when I'm giving God glory, there also is a river of living water that is flowing from me. So as I sing my exaltation to God, there is a filling of His Spirit that gives me peace and gives me joy. So this whole moment that happens in the courts of our God is not only a praise, it's a refreshing, a baptism. Here's the thing though, we haven't even gone in the tent yet. Oh, that's right. They couldn't go in the tent. But what we have is better. <laughs> so when he said you like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. When he said you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. What that means is because of Jesus, you used to have to stay on the outside. But because of Jesus, you are a priest, male, female, you are a priest in the presence of God. You get to step into the very presence of God where God is, like you get to walk in here. Why? Because it's better. So I'm not just worshiping out here and hearing all the rumblings that are going on in there. I'm worshiping here, but I'm stepping into the rumblings. I see the lightning and I see the thunder. When you see what I see, all of a sudden you know you're in the presence of God. Like you're in. I don't know if you've ever been left out of something. But man, there's something beautiful when somebody just opens the door and says, come on in. 
Come on in. You're not on the outside anymore. God just lets you in. Man can shut doors, whatever doors man wants to shut, but there's a door that God has opened that no man can shut. And I just want everybody to know that when God opens the door for you, will you just walk in? And so they walk in, in the presence of God. And there's this candle with seven burning candlesticks. And it's just a reminder that your local gathering is just one church of many. You know, I love that there wasn't just a big single candle because that would give people kind of the excuse to just be like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm a part of the global church. Yeah, every candle on that stick is a part of the global church, but there's something about the one that you're in. When we see that in the book of Revelation, John gave, received seven messages from Jesus, seven messages to seven churches. You might be in this church and this is your message. You might be in that church and that is your message. You might have some tests here that this church doesn't have, but you might have some glories here that this church hasn't seen yet. And so he speaks to us on an individual basis, but not one being less than the other. We're all on the same rack. That means we're all a part of the global church, but every single one of us are the gathering, the local gathering, because we gather in spirit. So when John saw the seven candlesticks in the holy place that represent the seven churches, that just means the completeness, the fullness of the local churches as the global church, he said, I saw Jesus walking in the midst of them. See, on the outside, they didn't get to see what was on the inside. But when we walk inside, Jesus is walking amongst us. And there's this table with 12 loaves of bread stacked in two sixes. And they would bring that offering of bread at the beginning of the week. And they would go in at the end of the week and the bread was still sustained. And it's just a reminder that you too will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Your bread will not mold, but God will provide for you. God will provide for you. You've been brought into the blessing now. You're not left out on the outside. But when you come with your offerings and you come with your praise, there is a reminder on the inside that provision has already been made for you, that a way has already been made. And so we see this because we're on the inside. And then there's this final altar. It's an altar of incense reflected in the heavens. John said, I saw 24 elders and they each had golden bowls. And the golden bowls were full of incense. There's a reflection of the bowl of incense in the holy place. What is it in the heavens? He said, it's the prayers of the saints. And so now there is this altar here that is full of incense. That is an invitation for you to come and pray. Because Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 says, Let us boldly come to the throne of grace where we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. 
But in the old covenant, there was a curtain that was in front of that altar that covered up the throne of God. But when Jesus was sacrificed and he said it is finished, the curtain that separated the altar so that even the place that the priest didn't get to see, but only the high priest. Remember, you're not the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is in the most holy place. We're standing as priests in the other holy place, and we couldn't see that. But Jesus, the high priest, not Aaron, the high priest, this covenant is better. Jesus, the high priest, when he said it is finished, he took that curtain that separated and he tore it in two so that from top to bottom, now when you're at this altar offering prayers, you're not offering prayers in front of a curtain. You're offering prayers in front of the throne room of God so that you know that you see him. I come boldly to the throne of grace, not because of my perfection, not because of what I did, but because of what he did, because of that altar where the lamb was slain. I can come boldly to that throne of grace and I can offer prayers and I know that he who hears me, he will answer me because I see him. Because I see him. So the, the tent hasn't been thrown away. The tent has been made better. Yes. Worship hasn't been removed. Worship has been made better. Drawing near to him hasn't been thrown out. Drawing near to him has been made better because we're no longer on the outside, but we're in the center of the presence of God when we gather together and offer him the worship and the praise that are due his name. Jesus made it all better. And I'm thankful and I'm grateful for what the Lord has done. And I'm thankful and I'm grateful for this church who gathers as a holy church, a church without spot, a church without wrinkle, a church whose praise is loud, a church whose prayers are endless, a church who understands what it means and has a desire to be consumed by the glory of God. We will not be satisfied just stepping into a room for not a purpose, but we come into the room to gather, to give him thanks, to praise his name, to hear his word, to hear his voice, to give him what he wants, and then we know that we'll receive everything that he has for us.